I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello, it's Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions at the RHS. And today I'm joined by garden historian, Gardener's World presenter and fellow podcaster Ad Volley Richmond. Welcome Ad Volley. Thanks Fiona, it's really great to be here. So Ad Volley, like me, you're obsessed with the rich history of our gardens, plants and horticulturalists here in the UK and abroad. You've even run a podcast aptly named The Garden History Podcast with episodes dedicated to the A to Z of garden history. So let's start the show and I wanted to ask, why do you think it's important to look back at this history and why are the people that influence the gardening world just as interesting as a study of the plants? There's so many hidden stories and a lot of people are just not aware of them. Everybody knows about historic gardens, but people don't realise that it takes a lot of people to create these gardens, sort of from your seeds merchant, your nursery people, your designers, gardeners, weeders, even the people that document these gardens and write about them. Each of these people have a story and these are the kind of stories that I like to research and write about. Yeah, you're completely preaching to the converted with absolutely. me. That's absolutely, yeah, that's why I got into to gardens. It's the people behind the plants that really got me into garden history and it's really important to look back, as you say, on this, the untold stories, particularly this month, which is Black History Month. And the theme for 2023 is saluting our sisters, highlighting the influence black women have had in shaping history, inspiring change and building communities. And when it comes to the world of horticulture, the history of black British gardeners is complex and sometimes brutal, with ties to slavery, colonialism and systematic racism. And on top of it all, the contributions, particularly of black women, have often been overlooked. But it's really important to look back because there is a long lineage of black British gardeners cultivating beautiful and productive plots against all the odds. So at Volley, this lineage of black women gardeners is just not talked about enough. And why do you think it's important to research and share these stories? As far as black gardeners, whether British or any other nationality, they have been overlooked. Women gardeners have tended to be overlooked. So black women gardeners are going to be just way down the list. But I think it's important to keep digging, excuse the pun, 
to find these histories because representation really matters. It's so important for people, whatever their age, to find their place in history. And so if you realise that there was this black gardener in the 17th century, 18th century, and they're doing this, they have a place in that history that you can then hopefully follow in those footsteps, whereas a lot of the time it does tend to focus on white, usually male, wealthy people. And so it is important to just try and give people of colour a place in history. Absolutely. The garden history is written from the point of view of the owner and the patron and the, the wealth story and and it, it, we just got an incomplete picture if we don't include the complete 360 degrees view of what actually happened and who was contributing to, to finding these plants, learning about these plants and, and then cultivating and growing them. And this brings us to the core of today's show. We're exploring a few of the extraordinary stories of black women who've made and continue to make a difference in the world of horticulture all the while looking ahead to what we can do to create a more equitable future. Garden designer Juliet Sargent, she made history in 2016 at Chelsea Flower Show and she will be sharing the stories behind her designs. And we're also getting a look at the life and work of Mrs Annie Van Reed, an amazing American nurserywoman who built a plant empire almost 100 years ago. And finally, we're chatting to the floral artist, Hazel Gardner, about the life-changing illness that brought her into the world of flora and how she's carved out an inspiring career for herself. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Fiona Davison. And me, Adverly Richmond. First up is garden designer Juliet Sargent. As well as her modern slavery garden, Juliet designed another Chelsea garden called the Blue Peter Discover Soil Garden in 2022. Its message was, don't treat soil like dirt. Beyond designing, Juliet also set up the Sussex Garden School to share her unique approach to plants and design. And currently, Juliet is designing a healing garden in London, inspired by Mary Wollaston, a fabled black healer from the 17th century. So... Without further ado, here's Juliet on her design philosophy and hopes for the future. I became a garden designer about 30 years ago, a long time now, and it was actually my second career. My first career was in medicine and uh, I also did a degree in psychology. But I found, although I enjoyed them very much, I had this sort of creative side to me and I found that... I wanted the days to be a little more different than they are as a doctor. The days are very different as a doctor, (laughs) but um, I wanted the days to be a little more different and to have more creative scope. So I'd, I'd always gardened and I wanted to explore the idea of creating gardens. My garden design philosophy is really very sort of people centric. I, I start by thinking how I want people to feel in that space. So for example, if it's a school garden, I might think, okay, I want the children to be excited about learning. I want them to be curious. I want them to be active. 
or if it's a garden for perhaps a home for elderly people. I want people to feel safe, orientated, relaxed, you know, enjoying the fresh air. So each time I start, how do I want them to feel? And then everything in the garden that I design, the shapes of the spaces, the materials, the plants, the colours, informs how I want them to feel. Chelsea 2016 was really, really exciting for me because I'd been a, a garden designer for a long time and like many garden designers, always wanted to exhibit at Chelsea, but you know, I'd, I'd had chances that didn't come through, which is very frustrating. And then really it was just the generosity of a sponsor who came to me and said, do you want to do a garden at Chelsea? She'd worked for years and years with a group who were working around the issue of modern slavery, and they wanted to use Chelsea as an opportunity to showcase that subject. And she just asked me. Again, like many of my gardens, I wanted it to be all about how you feel in the garden. And I wanted somehow to just give people the sense of what it might be like to be in a situation of forced labour. And so the garden was, was divided into two spaces. The inner space, I imagined, was like a captive space. It was dark, there were hardly any plants in it, and it was just, I suppose, an uninspiring space. <laughs> Whereas the outside of the garden was as colourful with lots of different plants, different colours, textures, light, and I imagined that that was what I called the free space where we live. And dividing the two spaces were doors, front doors. So the doors were colourful on the outside and black and sombre on the inside. And those doors represented the doors of the homes, of the factories, of the sheds, where people are held captive. So it was this sort of inside-outside story that I was trying to tell. I love the idea that you can use a garden space to tell a story. Like many art forms, a garden can capture your imagination and it can move you emotionally. And particularly when a subject is difficult to get people to engage with, like modern slavery, if you somehow move people on the emotional level and they become engaged, interested, moved by what they see, then they're more likely to engage intellectually. And that's what we wanted to do with the Modern Slavery Garden. We wanted to give people just a little sense of what it might actually be like to be a person in that situation. And then, once people feel something, then they'll start to think, you know, and they'll start to wonder, well, is there anything I can do about that situation? I hadn't really thought about the fact that I was the first black woman to have a show garden at Chelsea. It was something that a journalist picked up on. I mean, I was just busy doing my job. But it, I mean, it did become a bit of a thing. And um, lots of people were saying to me, you know, hey, well done, fantastic. It's great to see your success. That was, that was really, really nice. And then, yeah, going wider, it was, it was really nice to see people contacting me and chatting to me about, you know, how do I do it? How do I become a garden designer? How did you do it? What do I do? 
And I think, I mean, that whole thing about visibility is, you know, is really important. And I'm working on a project at the moment in London, which is part funded by the Mayor of London. And he, he has put some money into projects that are about increasing the visibility of historical figures in London who are people of colour who have made you know contributions to the to society and the life of London but are little known and so we're working on a project about a, a woman Mary Wollaston who they called Black Mary she lived in the 1700s and she was a very successful businesswoman she ran a healing well but nobody knows about her so this project is to install a statue of her and my job is to create a, a garden around the statue the idea is that it's a sort of modern-day healing space in the same way as Mary's healing well. Black Mary ran this healing well, and it was a time in London when the ground was really wet and marshy. London is built on bog, much, much of it. So you would sort of tramp out to this place called King's Cross, There'd be rivulets of water running through the landscapes, tussocks of grass, wet and marshy and mossy under, underfoot. And then in places, people would dig down to create a well and then reach down into the waters and pull out um, cups of brown water, which they called chalibayat water, which was iron. It was brown because it was sort of infused with iron ore and drink this, you know, swampy, swampy water and think it was going to make them better. And so I wanted to create a sense of this, this marshland, have a, have a garden that was a metaphor for the marshland. So we're going to have markings on the ground that represent rivulets of water. And there's already a stream in the space, so we'll have the stream, but the stream is going to disappear underground and then bubble up again around um, Mary's feet in the same way that the well waters would have done. I think it's great to have an opportunity to uh, raise the profile of somebody who's been lost in the mists of time. I've been invited to chair the Society of um, Garden Designers Conference soon, and the subject for that is um, global culture in garden design. So I've been thinking about culture and what is culture a lot recently. And, and I think if we think of culture as the society's personality, really, it's the personality of the collective. And developmental psychologists used to think that a person's personality is pretty fixed in childhood. They would say, you know, when you get to seven, eight, nine, your, your personality is fixed. But now they understand that our personalities are continuously changing through our lives. And I think the same is true of culture. If you think of culture as the personality of society, it shouldn't be fixed. We shouldn't think of it as a fixed thing. We should think of it as something that changes as new influences come into society, good or bad, that culture will change. And I think often people, they accept in their heads that change is a good thing, change has to happen, but they want the sort of change that means that everything stays the same. <laughs> and I think really embracing change as something that will mean our standards 
that we consider to be the right standards may need to change. So, for example, if you take garden design or horticulture, the colours that we think of as clashing, oh, you, you know, you can't possibly put those two colours together, that's not the right way to do it. If we think that about some colours, somebody else may see those colours as harmonious. And who's to say that our way is the right way? So I just think that having the humility to see other people's perspectives as equally valid and thinking that perhaps the way that we do things needs to flex and change and that our culture is not necessarily going to be the worse off for that is the way to see change in horticulture, I think. So thanks there to Juliet Sargent. We've included a link to her website in our show notes if you'd like to learn more about her work. So I'd volley, I was really interested to um, hear about Mary Wollaston, which was a story I'd not come across at all. No, I hadn't either. And this is the thing I love about history. There's always something new to learn. And I didn't know anything about this. And there are so many more of these stories just waiting to be discovered. And I can't wait to actually see what Juliet comes up with. And as for her modern slavery garden, I mean, that was just so inspired. It was a historic concept and the symbolism in Juliet's garden was so powerful. Those perfect doors that we walk past every day and we don't even stop to sort of think what might be going on behind those doors. It, it really was quite moving. And the other thing that came up after the Chelsea Flower Show was that Juliet received comments from young black gardeners that her work gave them hope that they too can reach, you know, the top echelons of professional garden design. And personally, I think this is where, again, representation really matters. And so what Juliet did was to say, yes, you too can do this representation at its absolute finest. And that's a story that's just not uncommon. Uh, when horticulturist and garden historian Abra Lee started as the landscape manager for the Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, which, by the way, is the busiest airport in the world, she felt like an imposter, she said. The advice she received was, turn back to history. And when she went back, she found black women who, like her, had reached great heights in the world of horticulture. It was inspiring and gave her immense confidence. So what that did for me, it showed me there was no ceiling. There was nothing that was not possible for me because it had all been done. It had all been done successfully and it had all been done by people who had spent 20, 30, 50 years sometimes in their career working into their 90s. Today, Abra, who I have to admit I'm a huge fan of, we are sort of mutual fangirls. And here she's going to tell the story of one of the women who's had a big impact on her career. Someone who an American newspaper said in 1928 says it with flowers. 
I'm writing a book titled Conquer the Soil, Black America and the Untold Stories of Our Country's Gardeners, Farmers, and Growers. This is a book of love stories. And one of the love stories in that book that I am most excited to share is the extraordinary, incredible life and legacy of Annie Mae Van Reed of Darlington, South Carolina. Annie Van Reed is a woman who's born in the South, born in Cuomo, North Carolina, in Hertford County, right on the North Carolina-Virginia border. She makes her way to South Carolina and is a school teacher and lives in a town called Darlington. And at her home in Darlington, South Carolina, she creates this beautiful flower garden, so beautiful that neighbors, friends, come by all the time and say, your flowers are so gorgeous, can we have some? And she's very generous and shares these beautiful blooms that she has. And though she's a school teacher at the time, she realizes there's a business opportunity here. She's a savvy businesswoman. She's born into a farming family. And she realizes I can open up a a flower shop. I can open up a garden center. And she does. And with that, she becomes an extraordinarily successful woman who owns a five acre nursery and greenhouse. She also ships flowers all up and down the East Coast from South Carolina all the way up North to Boston, which is a very, very long way. And she is pretty much a self-made millionaire off of just her work in floriculture with the businesses that she owns. And she's not just selling flowers, she is selling seeds. She is selling potted plants. She is well known in her town. And she's also a woman who uplifts other women. So there is a school called Bennett College, which is an HBCU, a historically black college and university in South Carolina for young black women. And Annie Mae Van Reed speaks at Bennett and encourages them to be entrepreneurs and to make their own money. So she's just an extraordinary woman that's ahead of her time incredibly business savvy and very much has a green thumb and and just can work magic with plants. Essentially, the way that Annie Mae Van Reed looks at plants and she says this is the same way that restaurant owners look at food. And she says that they look at their food as that is feeding a person's soul. And that is the way that I look at my plants and my flowers that it is soul food for your spirit. So let's just say flowers in general were her love language. When Annie Mae Van Reed starts her business, it's in the 1920s in the United States of America, specifically the 1920s in the Jim Crow South. So what that means is that in the Southern states, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Segregation is legal. It is legal to say black people over here, white people over here. Black people have restricted rights in terms of voting, in terms of what they are able to do on a day-to-day basis. There are what are called sundown towns that black people can't even drive through once the sun goes down. And this is a horrific time in American history, a truly horrific stain on American history. and women like Annie Mae Van Reed still thrive and survive and are able to 
succeed in commerce and in business and uplift their community despite the circumstances, despite the laws of the land, the United States Constitution not being written for them or used to help their lives thrive. So they are succeeding against the odds. And I want to be clear, I do not want to reduce her work and her gifts and her talents to the Jim Crow era. I just want to set the stage for the contrast of how successful she is, how beloved she is, how the majority of her clients are white in America, in the American South during this time, despite what is going on politically in our country. The community that she's building around her through Plants and Flowers and how giving she is with her knowledge to people, how she is essentially a queen maker and isn't just saying, I'm Annie Mae Van Reed, I'm the baddest there ever is. You figured out on your own. So that giving spirit, that thought that there's enough gold in Babylon for everybody, that success is available, that I don't have to be cagey with my success. I can share, I can mentor. That is what really stood out for me about her life and legacy, how giving she was of her talents and of her time and of her knowledge to make sure that others around her succeeded as well. Understanding her work, understanding the work of the other men and women and people that I write about, there is no one way, there is no one path, there is no perfect path. And it's the inspiration, it's the uplift, it is the light that you see that there is no ceiling on you, that you can be everything from a children's nature poet to an extraordinary businesswoman like Annie Mae Van Reed to an insect artist, an entomological artist, to a person that is a rose farmer or a person that builds parade floats made out of plants and that's your whole career. And I did not understand the arc of what was possible in horticulture and still I started researching and writing these love stories. I, it just didn't even occur to me. They created their own paths and their own lanes and they allowed me to do that for my career. So I owe them everything and I cannot wait to see what the next wheel turns for me because each one has been so extraordinary throughout this process and it's all due to them. Listening to Abra there, it reminds me just how important it is to sort of connect with like-minded people. And I have to say, I'm indebted to Abra because a while ago, I happened to listen to one of her online lectures about black women growers and gardeners in America. And so when I started writing my book, a Short History of Flowers, which is about the stories around 60 different flowers. When I came to Zinnia, I remembered her mentioning this woman, Clementine Hunter. So she was born on this plantation, which was the inspiration of Uncle Tom's cabin. And her grandparents had been slaves and her parents sharecroppers. And she taught herself how to paint. And one of her first paintings was a bowl of zinnias. And this was a subject that she came back to time and time again over the years. And 
Abra mentions about Jim Crow and segregation, Clementine Hunter was actually one of the first African-Americans to achieve a solo exhibition in Louisiana. But because of the segregation laws, she couldn't go in to see her own paintings. And I just thought, okay, wow. And so the book looks at all these different flowers, their history, but what I've done is sort of hang different stories about the flower. And yes, I'm incredibly grateful to Abra for, you know, just giving me that, you know, little pointer. And finally, for our last feature, we're turning to the world of floristry. Hazel Gardner had quite the unusual entrance into a life with plants, but now, almost eight years in, she finds the work more rewarding than she'd ever imagined. And she's here today to explain how she tells stories through plants and what aspects of her work she feels have a real impact. I always say we're more akin to set designers that just happen to use flowers. So our designs try and tell a story. And what I mean by that is it's about trying to evoke a feeling or emotion in you. If it's an event that's, you know, inspired by San Francisco, they feel like there's a little piece of San Francisco with, with them. This time of year, we're doing actually a big installation that's meadow, Sussex meadow based. So instead of just doing a jar just of grasses, we're really recreating meadows everywhere. So it's, it's something that people look at and they feel transported into a different place and different location or different mindset. So I suppose I mean literal storytelling, but also emotional storytelling as well. So from a young age, I did not know that I wanted to work with plants and flowers. I was very much focused on working in the media. I actually, from oh gosh, I was 13 or 14 and was obsessed with fashion and I still very much am. But I wanted to work in either fashion journalism or fashion PR. To tell you how I came into horticulture, I probably have to jump back a bit, which is the fact that I had a very rare cancer in 2007. And it was that that made me realise how... I needed nature to do something much more than to just look at. So I really needed to experience it, to be soothed, to be able to escape my very busy, very stressed brain. So the outdoors and gardening actually took on a whole different dimension. I think that's when I first went to Chelsea Flower Show. Um, I started visiting gardens. I started to make it a a hobby, you know, a, a real way of taking myself out of myself, really, of taking myself out of my brain and almost my body in some sense, because I couldn't really trust what my body was doing. I didn't know what was going to happen to my body. So it was very grounding, just being in something so solid, as in autumn was going to come, spring was going to come. If I go here, then I can see this plant in flower. So it became a real crutch for me. But I got to a point where I just really wanted, like my love of gardening had really accelerated over that period. And I just really, I just really wanted to work with nature, basically. But I knew, I think back then when I first got ill, it was still very, 
it was frowned upon if you suddenly leapt for one career to something completely different. When, when now so many people do that and it's completely encouraged and seen as nothing but positive in a lot of in a lot of industries but back then it was very frowned upon to look at a cv and there's you know my cv was already odd because it had a gap and i'd never had a gap i'd always attained and attained and and i just thought actually this is a time for me to just do whatever i want really and i kept coming back to flowers i kept coming back to it and it's not so different to styling you know because i did work in fashion it's not you know it's the same understanding of color and textures and working with people and clients so for me it just felt like the natural evolution of everything i'd done before it, it led me to flowers So I retrained in floristry in 2016. But actually, more importantly, it took me a while to actually find my signature style. You know, you can train and then there's so many different ways of being a florist. So it just took me a while to know what I wanted to do. And it started out like a lot of people where you're just doing, saying yes to everything. You know, at the very, very beginning, I'd get a Pinterest and just copy it, just give them exactly what they want because I didn't have a style. I just wanted to start getting credits and photographs and everything like that. So there is a bit of a process of much like an artist, you're just finding your feet after you've gone to, you know, Slade. <laughs> you're now on your own and you have to kind of find your feet. And obviously you're going to evolve. And I think... There was a particular shoot, which was a collaborative shoot, and it was seaside based. And I just used everything. I just used, I think I used rice flour uh, to almost look like coral. You know, I just didn't want it to be that hackneyed nautical kind of starfish thing. And I was like, you can you can show the essence of you know, of the sea without using those literal things. And I just created a, a lots of different textures, which things that weren't you know, in quotes, a, a cut flower. And that started that whole trajectory in terms of what my style was. And then once I found that, then I was like, this is it. This is my comfortable space. And yeah, it actually, the pivot made the business even bigger than what it is now in terms of just delivering beautiful flowers. I think for me now, I've been doing it quite a while. Where I find the meaning in my work now is... It's actually the people. So it's actually passing on in education to others that look like me in the industry. You know, I still don't think there's enough representation. I keep wanting, you know, people to not forget that a lot of people still feel very uncomfortable in the horticultural space. You know, that hasn't gone anywhere and it's it's there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. As well as people just remembering that it is something that can really nurture you, your mental health. I think there was a huge thing, I th I've seen a huge difference in who's more engaged with flowers, especially, and gardening. I think we all have, who work in the industry since, since the pandemic, but I don't want people to lose that. I don't want it just to be on the zeitgeist. I want the zeitgeist to keep on going. And I really want people to not just go back to their lives and forget that, you know, oh, they grew that one time and how much that gave them. Not all of us have an outdoor space, but if you can take, some inspiration from seeking out floral design or understanding what it actually really can look like on an amazing scale. I want people to go beyond that. I want them to go, I'm going to bring some green inside or I'm going to grow some herbs or I'm going to get some basil from a supermarket, but then divide it because that's how it should be. And just to bring it a little bit into their lives. If we all did that, that would make me very happy. Thanks there to Hazel. 
You can see Hazel's work at the upcoming Winter Flowers Week event at the Garden Museum. So, Advoli, before we close out on the show, I wanted to ask, in what ways does exploring overlooked stories from our past and indeed our present, hearing from people like Juliet, Abra and Hazel, give you any hopes for the future of horticulture? I think what gives me hope the most is that nowadays people have access to different media. And so beforehand, you had to be in the public eye famous to be able to write a book or to be able to be interviewed about something or even to give your opinion about something. Whereas now we've got podcasts, we've got TikToks, we've got social media. And if somebody finds something interesting within the horticultural world, they're able to share that information very easily. And therefore, it inspires their own generation. And so I think having listened to Juliet, Abra and Hazel, there is hope. There is always, always something there to research, reflect upon, experiment with. So, yes, I have a great deal of hope for the future. In terms of making gardens more inclusive for different communities, what do you think we can do beyond, you know, the, the listening to different voices and uncovering stories? What do you think we should be doing? I think one of the most important things to remember about horticulture, and I will bang on about this forever and a day, <laughs> is that we need to make horticulture a science. It is a science. Botany is a science. Chemistry is a science. Why can't horticulture be a science as well? And therefore, once it's treated like the science it is, it will be elevated and a lot more people will be drawn to be more involved in horticulture because certainly when I was growing up, gardening and horticulture were seen as occupations that you went into if you weren't academic. Mm. And so I think we need to dispel this myth that, you know, horticulture is weeding and mowing the lawn. There is just so much more to horticulture. And I think that is the answer. Yeah. Am I banging on? Now, <laughs> <laughs> as I say, you're preaching to the converted again. It's an undervalued <laughs> profession and always has been. And it's got that association with the leisured classes as well, which again makes it feel exclusive, not inclusive, rather than, as you say, a profession that anyone can aspire to and if they've got the skills and the talent can, can excel in. So thank you, Advoli, for joining us. And what a great note to end on. That's all for this week. So from me, Fiona Davison. And me, Advoli Richmond. Goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. 
I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.